Welcome to Clark County Today. I'm your host, David Medore. Our guest today is Kevin Peterson. Kevin, you are, in my own paraphrase words here, are a forensic design expert. Is that a fair description of what you do? Well, not, a, not exactly, but in this case it probably is. Um, I'm an architect, um, planner, and I'm a travel the world helping communities and cities piece together transit and transportation. So you, you have plenty of experience, you have a lot of expertise, yeah, you would be considered an expert when it comes to design, bridge design. And the reason what we're going to talk about here is your role in evaluating and comparison, comparing the CRC design compared to what you have as offered as an alternative, some kind of an evaluation from, an, from, a, out, from a third party expert. Oh, yes. Um, in fact, what you see on the screen here is, is a comparison of what I discovered might be possible for this crossing and contrasted in what you see in red, which is what the CRC project office is currently proposing for this crossing. But let me back up a little bit, David. Okay. Um, what I do is, is help communities discover how best to integrate transportation improvements into those communities. I've traveled the world. Um, helping communities deal with some very complicated projects and some very complicated urban landscapes. And uh, a couple years ago I was helping um, City of Portland with a couple projects they had for bridges and a number of designers in that community asked me if I would take a look at what's being proposed for the Columbia River crossing. And I indicated that I would take a look at it and if I saw that what was being proposed by the two departments of transportation was a valid approach to the project, that, well, I would support the project. So venturing into it, I um, um, wanted to, um, first of all, ask myself if I thought that the project as a replacement project for the bridge made sense. Good and, question to ask. And, and my conclusion was, yes, it probably does make sense to at some point replace that bridge. As you know, the first bridge was built before the war and it was using technologies that were beginning to be leaned out a little bit by our engineers and there are a number of deficiencies and substructure problems that probably force us in the future to, to replace the bridge. So, so an uh, upgrade would naturally be in order. Yeah, we need to do something. And it may not be that we do it this, this year or next year, but in the short run relative to how long cities live it needs to be done, absolutely. Um, and then the next question I ask myself is, is, did the Departments of Transportation come up with the correct, what I call, fit for function? And that's the most perplexing question. And it, it leads one to understand how the roadways are laid over the landscape, the function of those roadways, how they coexist within the urban environment, how you fit the complexity of an urban freeway and two bridge crossings into a very, very tight, um, little over a mile section of I-5. And then you have to do that in such a way that you keep the freeway operating and viable during the time of the fix. That transition. That transition period. So I ventured into the project and went to the website of the project, which is a wonderful website. It's rich with material and gives one a good appreciation of what the um, project engineers were having to deal with when they, when they designed the project. And you mentioned forensic. Mm -hmm. um, the one thing that we have the advantage of when we look back at what people did is we can more easily and clearly see what might have been done differently. So that notion of forensic is, 
is, is appropriate. We, we learn by what other people have discovered. And through the benefit of hindsight, we can ask ourselves, is there not a better way to fit the function onto this landscape? So you were able to take a look at the, what was proposed, what, what the plans were, and compare that to the, well, evaluate the, the appropriateness of that solution. How well does that fit? How well does that solve the problem? And well, and keep in mind that I came into this, this, this um, look by a, a, a group of designers who were not really happy with what they saw as the output from the, from the CRC project office. So I, I went looking at it with an eye towards simplifying, making safer, ideally saving money, and making a, a much nicer bridge that the community would be proud of over a longer period of time. So I um, ventured into the um, background material on the project and I discovered a couple things that, that I thought were, were more interesting. First is, is the misapplication of FAA glide slope criteria from Pearson Field. As best as I can determine, the project was using, I don't want to be technical with you, but a ILS approach glide slope for a precision landing within the glide slope criteria put forward for Pearson Field, which is a utility runway that has a non-precision uh, instrument approach. Well, a non-precision instrument approach to a, a utility runway uh, requires a 20 to 1 glide slope. I thought, well, why is the project using a different lower glide slope? Check with the city, check with the airport. Their master plans, both for the airport and the city, require a 20 to 1 glide slope. So imagine this. Buildings are being built around the airport with a 20 to 1 glide slope, but for some reason the freeway was being designed to a different glide slope. Okay, let me just see if I can translate that or summarize what you just said. We have an adjacent airport, airport Pearson Airport, located right near the free, the, that bridge, that yes, freeway. Very close. And the, as airplanes approach or they take off from that runway, they either need to go up one foot for every 20 feet or they need to go up one foot for every 34 feet. That's your glide slope. That was, that was the basic choices that... that okay, and the, that has everything to do with where you place the bridge. Well, and, and if you have a, a 20 to 1 glide slope and you're trying to put a, a bridge between, in this case, a glide slope and the upper portion of the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad clearance envelope, mm -hmm. you have a little tiny opportunity. Mm -hmm. So on our side of the river, on the Vancouver side of the river, we have that railroad, uh, rail, railroad tracks that are elevated yes. above the freeway. Freeway actually goes underneath it, right? Yeah. And so if we're going to put a, a bridge that is not a lift bridge, it's up, actually up in the air, we're going to have to go on the top of that, which means we are creeping up into some airspace there. And the question is, uh, I guess the design, as it, as it was constrained, artificially constrained, said, well, we need to stay way below that but in reality, there's more leeway there. Well, the assumptions that, that I was able to deduce, and I'm not absolutely certain because I, I really wasn't able to find a, a good train of thought there, mm -hmm. is, that, is that the project designers thought that they needed to put the bridge lower than the lower glide slope, but above the Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad, which created a window that was very narrow and force them basically to say the only thing we can do is have a wide, expansive freeway deck that hits between the rock and the hard place. 
And, and I discovered that if, if the correct glide slope criteria had been applied, it creates a little bigger window. And it suggested to me that, okay, it wasn't then an obligation to have a single deck with all the lanes of traffic on, but you could actually stack the freeway. I thought that was interesting. So I began to explore a little bit more. And let's take time out and I'll show you another image if I could. All right. We'll, we'll pause here for a minute while we pull up another image. So, so David, on the screen here, you see the, the lane configuration that the CRC project office was having to cope with. And that's too many interchanges, too close together, and two bridges within a very short length of the freeway. And what they had to do, since they felt obligated to have a single bridge level, was to have flanking lanes, what we see in green, blue, and red here, that basically had to widen the bridge because of all the merging of traffic in and out of the freeway. So essentially what, what the project office realized is that we have to expand the number of lanes so that we can account for this merging, essentially collector-distributor lanes along the side of the freeway. So because they constrain themselves to a single level that has to carry all the traffic, they're still making a multi-level. There's this, these, the, the bottom level is supposed to carry pedestrians and light rail. Oh, sure. So it, it, yeah, it's three-dimensional, yes. yes and but the, we're talking only about the freeway, yep. which, which is a concern to us in freeway design with these interchanges because they're so close to one another. They basically lay over the landscape a tremendous amount of what we call rampway spaghetti which as we've seen in what they've been proposing is essentially um, a good portion of Hayden Island and really um, occupies the front, the, the, the front door of Vancouver with respect to the river with overlaid with freeways and ramps. So the notion of, of a single level freeway in which all the traffic, shore to shore, local traffic, interstate movement, fast movements between cities, it all has to coexist within the freeway deck forces it to be wider and much more expansive and land-hungry when you apply that over an urban, urban situation. And is so, all this as a result of the, that original glide slope you talked well, about? Well, more, more or less, but remember, they could have put a two-level bridge on a straight alignment, or side-by-side -side bridge, mm -hmm. but it would have extended into Fort Vancouver. It would have taken park land to do that. So that was not an attractive option. We... We jealously guard our parks. In fact, as a young architect, I participated in a RUDAT study of Fort Vancouver in which in the early 1970s, we determined it was a place of, of regional historic, national historic importance and, and set up the mechanisms in place to help preserve that. So we want so, to preserve the Fort Vancouver. You don't absolutely. want to encroach into that absolutely. area. But we also want to be able to make sure that we meet the FAA requirements absolutely. when it comes to Clyde Slope. But that fundamental constraint that, that said the, that... The glide slope constraint and the ability, and the need, the perceived need to put additional lanes onto the shoulder resulted in the design that we see before us. Which became very complicated. Well, we're talking about $3.6 billion for a sec section of road with, with two significant river crossings. One is the North Portland Harbor and the other is the Columbia River. Very, very complicated, very, very expensive solution that's been put forward uh, to build this. 
and the now, footprint I, that it takes across Hayden Island, uh, it, it just... Well, from my point of view, it takes Hayden Island off the map relative to a viable urban place for people to live and work. It's an expanse now of freeway, freeway. It consumes it. Consumes it. And to me, it's, that's, that's a tragedy because we're committed to a light rail system that will place a station there. So what will the station serve? A few people, yes. But does it serve enough people to be relevant? Now, I deal with transit systems around the world. We build transit around the world and put stations into communities when they have ridership in, say, three, four, five hundred people in the peak hour. I'm afraid that the light rail investment on Hayden Island will be undermined because it will be measured in, in use of maybe a dozen or two dozen people during the peak hour. That's it may be substantially more than that, but it certainly isn't hundreds and hundreds of people per hour. So I look at what's being proposed as, as essentially gutting the heart and soul of both Vancouver along the waterfront and Hayden Island to be viable, effective places in our urban environment that can be productive for future generations. So the impact of the current design is has some very significant drawbacks to it. Well, I knew that. I, okay, and I knew that it's one thing to look at at a at a design solution put forward and ridicule it, but I also knew in my heart that that in this case, because of the time and effort that many people have spent struggling with the issues and trying to come up with an acceptable design, that in order for people to to know that there truly was a different and difference, and pr prove to myself that that walking the talk was possible relative to lesser impacts, less costly, more viable, more attractive crossing would require that I demonstrate an alternative. So you looked at the current design, consumes the heart and soul of Vancouver and Hayden Island, and you ask yourself the question, this is very complicated, is there a simpler, less impactful way to do it? And what did you end up with? And, and I discovered, yes, there is a much simpler way of doing it. That's a much more elegant structure. And the cost? And its cost, as best as I can determine, is anywhere between a half million and three, half billion and three quarters of a billion dollars less than what's being proposed. Less. So it's less. simpler and lower cost. And I, and I think it consumes something like 20, 22 fewer city blocks in downtown Vancouver and Hayden Island. More or less? Less. In other words, there is an alternative design. Can you show That's the first yes. one you looked at. So what we have here in the red is the original design, as a proposed now. As proposed last winter, I believe. So okay. it's, it's essentially Close the same. Close to the yeah. original design. And, yeah. and, 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 and then you see, in contrast to that, a straight alignment. That's the yellow. That's the yellow, which is, in my estimation, a viable alternative for what this crossing could look like. Now, it does a number of things. It brings what is the equivalent of 20 city blocks back into urban use. It straightens the freeway. You in, now, everybody knows who lives in the community that there's that very awkward jog as you drop down from the hill, Fort Vancouver, Vancouver, and, and, and get onto I-5. Well, with the freeway further downstream, the jog will be a gentle, sweeping, large S-turn. So... When we, have, when we have geometry that is not simple in a complex environment of off-ramps and on-ramps, 
you create congestion. And with consequence of congestion, it's a less safe bridge. So I know that if you straighten the alignment, you gain a lot of safety, and I would think fewer fatalities over the life of the bridge. So the yellow here is what you're proposing. Right. This being a much narrower well, footprint. Right. And in all fairness for the viewers, if they can see the screen, the yellow is the additional land take for a straight alignment. Okay. And we'll talk about collector and distributor because there's something that's at play there. Okay. And the red represents land we would not necessarily take. We would not take if we went with a straight bridge. What's not colored, it, there's no difference between, between the two notions. Okay. So what you're showing is the, the difference. The difference. The impact difference between the right. two designs. How could you end up with, it with a straight alignment that's so much more narrow, lower cost, safer? What allowed you to do this? Why wouldn't... What, cons well, what constraint ended up with the complex design that we have now? Um, a, I won't call it a trick, but one of the fundamental choices you have when putting freeways into urban environments is, is the collector distributor. What does that mean? A collector distributor means all the people that want to get on and off in that dense portion of the city that, that would want to have multiple points get on and off, Hayden Island, Vancouver, Martin Luther King Marine Drive, they get to get onto a separate distinct road before they reach that critical area and then from that roadway, that collector distributor, then they, they, they would slow down and travel that collector distributor slightly lower speed, maybe 45 miles an hour, and then they would get off of that to meet with the communities. So we have this yellow bridge is, or this straight aligned bridge that you're proposing has two levels. It has two levels. And you, got, you have traffic going north on one level and south on the other level? No. What we have is we have an upper level that's dedicated to interstate movement. Okay, that's your that, high-speed traffic in the right, upper level. Right, right. And that, that's for people going between, say, Portland and Seattle. Okay. That's the traffic that uses the interstate for regional movements. That traffic doesn't want to commingle with the shore-to-shore -shore traffic, it's which is... more bypass. Right. You want your shore-to-shore -shore traffic to be available for freight mobility, for grandma and grandpa who are wanting to drive from shore-to-shore. -shore. You don't want them necessarily mixing with the high-speed traffic. Okay. If you take a semi across, across the bridge and you have to go up, over, and down, you're going to be impeding the flow if it must co-mingle mm -hmm. with the through traffic. Mm -hmm. Now, the present design deals with that by having those multiple lanes on the shoulders. Okay? So if we take those multiple lanes and just bring them underneath and keep them separate, then the through traffic basically moves through without any conflict with local traffic. And then the local traffic, the shore-to-shore -shore traffic, can be dealt with much like an urban arterial, a shore-to-shore -shore bridge that caters to the needs of the communities on either shore. So the, the, the collector distributor can be used, if discreetly used as a different level in the bridge, as a way of connecting the communities without subjecting those movements to interstate highway speeds. So essentially the communities end up benefiting by the interstate bridge and the, and the mobility that's achieved there, as well as the mobility gain achieved by having a local connector between the shores. So the, the stacked bridge being the freeway high speed through on the top and the more of a community bridge on the bottom, you really, it sounds like you can't kind of get in two bridges for the price of one. Well, one, one would, yes. If, if one does infrastructure for communities, you definitely want to shape the design to give you the maximum benefit for as many people as possible. One of the things I see in the current design, it's a singular solution. It says all we're accommodating, as far as rubber tire traffic is concerned, all we're accommodating is people in a freeway mentality. 
a freeway philosophy. You can still comply with all the freeway criteria with the collector distributor and just use it, use it in that critical core section of the city. And, and that allows for the, for the collector distributor to also function as arterial and arterial connecting the shores essentially, as, as you pointed out, the equivalent of two bridges. Mm -hmm. So the on-ramps and off-ramps associated with tying those, uh, connecting to those two layers, uh, are, are they simpler? Well, are, in a few minutes, we'll look at what this actually means to the two communities, and, and we'll look at plans that I've drawn that shows an indicative uh, layout of how that can be accommodated. But okay. yeah, essentially, that's what it means. Okay. There are people that would love to have light rail on this bridge. Does it accommodate light rail? Absolutely. Does it accommodate heavy rail? You know, um, David, one of, the, one of the problems I see with the way we do bridges today is we, is, is we create a design brief, a design program that all of our planners and engineers are required to, to meet. Mm -hmm. In this case, this bridge is being designed to meet a specific requirement for light rail, a specific requirement for pedestrians, and a specific requirement for interstate highway mobility. Valid. 20 years in the future, maybe with the present economy, 30 years in the future. You know, a specific point in the horizon where we're, we're bringing in standards and criteria that, that are singular purpose when it comes to the rubber tire traffic. I mentioned the spaghetti laid over the landscape. Um, on the other hand, we're not designing the bridge to meet the needs 30 years from in the future, we're designing a bridge to meet the physical realities of a sustainable bridge that must be valid 200 years from now. So once we build this, it's going to be around for a couple of centuries, and we want to make sure we're not too nearsighted that we can provide something for the long term. And so this design, the, the double-decker, uh, simple design that you've come up with, how well does that compare? It, it, com it compares beautifully with providing future generation with transportation flexibility. Okay, so multimodal, that's one of those oh, keys. Multimodal, with, with, the, with the general design structural requirements that go into a bridge like this, if you have a straight alignment without curves, without merging traffic, whatnot, you could use the shoulders of the upper level bridge for commuter rail, for high speed rail, for additional light rail, because the geometry is very easy to accommodate in the bridge. Same with the lower level, be shore to shore. You can augment it with additional transit. You can augment it with additional rubber tire capacity. So you could go from, say, four lanes, two in each direction, on the local arterial connecting the shores, the collector distributed, maybe three lanes in each direction. You create a transportation platform that future generations can manipulate so that they can take advantage of whatever transit opportunities they are presented with. So there's provision for multi, multiple choices in the future. And so you build the bridge, and if they want to add a heavy rail, light rail, other forms that may come up with 50 years from now, the provision is there. You can build it because you've already got the straight alignment that accommodates that. You have provision. The separation of, of through traffic interstate local traffic. And, and, and I can't help but think that, that, well, you deal with technology. Yes. We are seeing smart cars evolving quickly. The world is there, going to change. There will be a day within a couple decades where we will probably have cars talking to one another, traveling up and down the I-5 corridor that act as trains. In other and, words, and, the, and the vehicles will get smarter. The vehicles will get smarter. We will probably get lazier. 
And we will see that we will want to apply that technology to our existing infrastructure. All these mergings that are going on within this bridge crossing, they basically preclude that without having to make heavy modifications. The inside lanes certainly can be converted over, but the merging and whatnot makes it probably less safe. Definitely you would not want to mix high-speed rail or commuter rail within that. So you want a transportation platform that provides, that provides future generations with options and choices they will discover they need to apply onto the existing infrastructure while we satisfy the criteria that our funding sources have put forward to us on the short term. That's smart design. That's what I call sustainable design. So what you have in your proposed design is a platform which basically accommodates the present and leaves lots of flexibility for the future for a lower cost in comparison to the current design which consumes all of the available space with today's technology which is relatively slow uh, light rail, a single, <laughs> single tra uh, transit option and doesn't leave anything for the, for the future. What about uh, pedestrians, bikes, where do you put that? The arterial level. Where traffic is moving slower, where the shoulders can be wide, where people can be seen, they can see. The, one of the difficulties with the current design is you have this environment that pedestrians are being asked to, to go in and, and they, they may not be able to see anybody if there's no other pedestrians. It's not, not an observable, not, you don't necessarily have a sense of security when you're in that large expansive space and <laughs> there's really no way to flee if there's bad people there. Mm -hmm. you, have, you have pedestrian space is much more effective when, when it, it, in an urban environment when you have a sense of observability within that. So you light rail, local traffic, shore-to-shore -shore arterial traffic, 45 miles an hour, wide expansive pedestrian way, 25, 30 feet where you can bring a bikeway into it. You may even want to consider dropping the speed a little bit on the arterial as more and more people get active with bikes so that they can share those lanes. Sure, you don't have this, these huge <laughs> noisy vehicles just rushing by you. It's more of a Well, mind you, you do have the occasional long, large semi. And, and, and David, remember that I'm not proposing an alternative. All I've done is establish that another fundamental option exists that has significant benefit to the communities measured in terms of sustainability, footprint, environmental impacts, and cost. So, and if the, I'm thinking that the pedestrian and the bikes and that kind of thing, that's, that would be in the bottom level, which is a covered level anyway, it just makes it more of a, <laughs> I'm thinking, we get a lot of rain here, we right. give you a bit of a shelter there. Uh, what you're proposing here, uh, the argument against that is going to be, hey, we've studied this thing to death. It's been, let's go full speed ahead. We can't just keep studying and studying and come up with another any, design. Any, any, any project, regardless of size, is a series of forks in the road that you can take. This project took a couple wrong choices, made a couple wrong choices in the fork in the road. The inappropriate use of, the, I'll call it a wrong glide slope, was a fork in this road that forced a series of actions to be taken. 
the, the fact that they did not recognize that they were that they were in effect creating a collector distributor need on the outside shoulders and separating that. You know, and, and, and I can understand that 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 would not have been intuitive to people who had not really designed multiple numbers of freeways or transportation transit systems in complex urban environments. Very easy one to me. You don't find it in our standards books. So so it's easy for me to see that, that there was no signpost that told them they had a choice to make at that junction. So, so what, what I discovered that if you had made a couple different course directions, that you probably would have ended up with a significantly different project. And um, when we look at, at what it might imply to the different communities, I think you'll find it most intriguing. Well, I'm curious. We've had a number of basic changes. For instance, they designed this box girder type of design, spent years on that, and within a month of it being revealed, it got shot down as unbuildable. Uh, when did you first present this to the CRC, this alternative? Oh, a little over a year ago. And and since then, they've thrown out their current design and started with something new. Why wouldn't they consider this design? Um, well, we do things in this country in a rather odd way. Um, we are process-driven. We put our decision-making into a series of steps. Once you've passed that step, it's very, very difficult to retreat and create a different direction to a project. It's a very complicated scenario of relationships and commitments and agreements that go in place as you're building a project from its beginning. So what I see happen that was, was, was unfortunate is about 2007, 2008, in that period of time, they should have been looking at, at what I saw forensically after they had completed their conceptual design process. And remember, they're just now breaking into preliminary design. So, which, which is intriguing that you have a project like this that, that you have to go back three or four years to find it being set in terms of alignment for the freeway in, in its conceptual form. So it's, 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 just, it's just what happens in our society as we, as we have these large bureaucracies that we empower to do these very large and complicated infrastructure projects. You have to organize your decision making so it makes sense against all the obligations that you have to deal with as you're modifying a very complex, complicated urban environment. And it makes sense that there's a sequential process. You, need, you can't keep going back and changing things and then revamping things, but at some point... Well, if I can, if I can tell you what I would make as far as a recommendation, okay. and, and it's something that I encourage all departments of transportation to do, is question the first lines you draw that you think are the fit for the function. It's that first 1% to 2% of your design that can really make or break a project. We have a term in this industry called value engineering. It comes into play years after those first few lines are formulated. It's those first few lines where you want the experts. You want people that have done this sort of thing around the world to come in 
and help you make the decisions that you need to make to get it started on the right path. Mm -hmm. What I find is, is oftentimes people are afraid of, of doing what's right in the beginning because of, of uncertainty, lack of confidence, lack of skill. They, don't, they have to learn what's required to deal with the complexities of the projects, and they're very reluctant to bring in that sort of, to engage that more critical level of discovery early in a project. That preliminary design, that original debate that's got to happen, that evaluating of all the different trade-offs, that's something that has to happen if you're going to design any kind of a solution for any kind of good product. Uh, private industry does that real well. I carry an iPhone, man, that works well. You well, can you know, and, and, and most, <laughs> most clients that, that, that I get to work with, they um, want me to have people challenge what I suggest. Sure. And I look forward to that because that's how we learn. That's how the, you improve the design. More, the more people you bring, you, you engage. And I'm talking about people who, who have seen this sort of thing before. The more you engage them, you learn from what they've learned. And that's very important. And, and I can see in this project that that might not have been diligently done, okay. especially to have made these two, what I call, mm, divergent routes. Okay, so uh, here we are, uh, years later. <laughs> we have a full speed ahead, build this as it's designed proposal that's gonna cost $8.7 billion and not fix the Rose Quarter and consume a lot of space, change the character of, of Hayden Island and Vancouver based on a glide slope that artificially constrained it, that yeah. changed everything. Yeah, now we talked about the Rose Quarter. Wouldn't it be nice if you could, say, put a commuter rail line operating on the upper level that would then go through downtown Portland and deliver a lot more people more efficiently? And then this investment makes sense against the philosophy for how Portland wants to do its future. With the current proposal, there's no provision for that, right? No, no. It's and so not to say it wouldn't be fit in, but there's no provision for it that I can see. But you, again, get back to the transportation platform. We don't know what the future will require of us, and we must create whatever infrastructure investment we do to give as many opportunities to the future as possible. A smart let, platform. Let me, let me give you an example of that. Okay. Do you know that the Brooklyn Bridge was thought to be needed before the Civil War? and that it was actually designed immediately after the Civil War, and it was put in operation in 1883. That bridge, that foresight by those civic leaders is a bridge that will be part of New York for the next 100 to 200 years. So if you're gonna could build you, it. Could you imagine <laughs> in 1870 if they were worried about cow dung and carriages and slip resistant surfaces, they probably would have convinced themselves they couldn't think beyond a barge to carry the horses across. Mm, mm. So civic leadership requires creating a future that is sustainable and gives future generations the opportunity to advantage it. A platform. A, a transportation platform, platform. That can lend itself to the future. Yes. Okay. So it, it sounds, well, we're, we're so far down the road. Uh, what can we do at this point? Well, you haven't poured any concrete. Through. You haven't expended a lot of money on design. Mm -hmm. um, you have, within this, within this notional approach, you have the ability to, to save tremendous urban impacts, environmental impacts, a half, maybe three quarters, maybe even a billion dollars. 
in the initial outlay to build this. I would like to think, I would like to think that we have a community that, that would want to see the right thing done. I would hope so, David. I would hope so. Uh, well, I, I believe so. It's a matter yeah. of it, does the community really have a voice in this, and that's well, that's well, I know, and, been and a it, challenge and, and for it, us. And it's, it's a shame because I'm not an economist, but if the average household in Vancouver commits what twelve, thirteen, fourteen thousand dollars a year in local, state, federal taxes, unnecessarily spending three-quarters of a billion dollars that you borrow. So it's actually maybe three billion. Or four when, billion. Or four billion. Four to one ratio is what the current proposal costs. You know, David, costs. David, that's something like three, four, five years of every person in Vancouver, every penny that they pay in taxes, local, state, and federal, unnecessarily being spent. Why would, why would the Departments of Transportation not want to save that burden on the taxpayer for a better product? I, I tell you, I'm at a loss. I can't explain it, which is, which is why I'm sitting here talking with you and not interacting with the project team to try to make this a, a viable project. <laughs> I think we're all <laughs> at a loss here. There's so many of us at a loss. Those individuals that are pushing it, I think, I, I, I wish I could get some answers from them right. to be able to explain right. well, why to us we, how, why, the, how their brain is thinking. Why don't, we, why don't we leave that alone? And let's look at the individual communities yes. and the choices that they have before. All them. right, so we'll close this. We'll open up okay. uh, another view. Okay, is it on here? Uh, I think we have to go back one more file. Okay. Let's go to Hayden Island. Okay. Okay, and we'll maximize that guy. Oh, let's go. Let's. Okay. Okay, let's go to that one, and then we'll come back to this one, and, and I'll. You want to put them side it. by side? Yeah, let's put them side by side. This one right here. Yeah. Okay, so I'll bring this guy over here if I can grab it. Okay. And we're going to expand it up a little bit. Hello. Okay, I'm not able to do that. <laughs> I missed you. You missed the corner. Okay. Right down here. Yeah, go back up a little closer. You actually have to be inside the corner there. Aha, uh -huh. okay. That's about as big as it gets. Okay. Okay, and is this one framed up enough? That's fine. That works. Okay. All right. Okay. So what are we looking at? David, we're looking at a comparison between the existing proposal, its impacts on Hayden Island, and what would result if we were to consider a straight alignment where we put one bridge level on top of the other, a stacked bridge. Now, Which on, image should we look at first? This one let's on the look left? at the left here. Okay, so this is your proposed uh, d new design, the simple design. Well, let's call it, this, this is indicative of the design that might follow if this approach were to be studied by WashDOT. It's, okay. uh, I wouldn't call it a design. I call, actually, David, it's preconceptual. It's cartoon. Okay. But. So but you're just you're being careful about, I, about how you propose does, this. The word design means different things to different yes, people. Yes, I understand. So, so we don't want to exaggerate any of this. We want to make no. it, but basically, the concept that you have here 
you, you do this for a living. This is you're an expert in this field. Right. So and, this and is where you and start. I'll, and I'll tell you what. What my job usually entails is sitting down and sorting through some fundamental choices and doing a series of drawings like this that are indicative of what would be the consequence if that community were to elect to follow that particular path. Which is and, and so that's exactly what I've done here within this quick little study that I've done. By no means is everything technically resolved. You could say that every line drawn is wrong because it's, it's a preconceptual study. It is indicative, mm -hmm. but it is fundamentally sound. Okay. And, and, I, and I say that with, with, with all confidence. Understand. So what we see here is, is the existing freeway basically occupies a footprint that, that is about this expansive mm -hmm. through Hayden Island. And it creates a noise footprint that basically envelops the majority of the developmental land on Hayden Island. So you cannot live, work, or visit Hayden Island without that freeway drone being part of your experience. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what I ask myself is how could, how could we leverage this, this freeway investment to make Hayden Island a place where three, four, five, six, ten thousand people might want to live in a transit-oriented development that would be able to advantage the light rail station and create a wonderful place that is yet another pearl on the, on the string that forms the necklace of I-5. Rather than consume it with, a free, with this huge freeway. Right, right. So what you see is the ground plane. So you don't see the freeway levels above this. But look at that. That is the interchange. Simple. It's, 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 an, it's a signaled intersection. It's no wider than the footprint of the 120-foot wide upper deck. Oh, maybe it's 140 feet wide. Maybe. Cars come off the collector distributor, they pull up to the signaled interchange, they turn left or right, and they're in Hayden Island. Compared to what, like 600 feet on the current design? Oh, and they're talking about forcing people to go back across to the other side and then come over on a separate bridge. And then the noise of the freeway never goes away, hmm. which a second bridge might be fine because nobody will probably want to live on Hayden Island. And that's a pretty bold statement on my part. But, but in comparison to something like this, and, and see, the land that's been acquired for the bridge already could become a wonderful park that complements mm -hmm. the, what do we see there, One, five, six, seven, eight, nine. So what, what's in red here? What is this red? Those down? are city blocks. Okay. The smaller ones are 200-foot city blocks. So imagine downtown Portland, the 200-foot city block. Yes. You see... So these would have been consumed 20, by the current design and just cover those up, right? Or make them non-viable as places to live and work. Okay, so this basically so, allows Hayden Island to, re, to retain right. these, uh, enhance their community rather than consume that space. With right, and, and, and there's also a qualification on that. You get these 20 city blocks of mixed-use development by containing the freeway and containing the noise of the freeway. So I had to ask myself, how might it be possible to contain the noise? Mm -hmm. So we'll look at that in a minute. Okay, I am that. curious about that because you still got yeah. a freeway right on the oh, top Oh, absolutely, layer. absolutely. And, and, and there's a, a quick, I'll, I'll introduce the subject, but say there's a couple of ways we deal with it. The Alaska Way Viaduct in downtown Seattle mm -hmm. is a horrible example of how we don't want to do it. Um, two negatives there, that doesn't work. Okay. But the, the, the trick would be to have a continuous structure which does not have the expansion joints the cars going across, 
and to be able to take the, the whine of the tire away using soundproof pavements and a sound barrier. Now, sound barrier is a little frightening, so we'll look at an interesting way okay. of, of solving that. But let me call your attention to this diagram. All right. What, what you see in here is what I think is the sound footprint of a two-level structure where we can contain the noise. And unfortunately, this black line here is, is very small, but it's, it's contained within the first facade of that block. Now, we can do like what was done at Canary Wharf in London, where you develop those buildings with triple glazing and, and other ways to really mitigate that sound. Mm -hmm. So we can create a community that, for practical purposes, knows the freeway is there, but doesn't treat it as an objectionable neighbor. Mm -hmm. It's just the way you come on and off the island. Mm -hmm. so, so I'm confident that we have techniques of engineering and soundproofing and whatnot that would be able to contain that noise within an elevated structure so it is not Mm -hmm. like the Alaska Wood it's, it's, it's a much more of a bite-sized solvable problem because basically it's a, it's a well-defined corridor. It's a relatively narrow corridor. That's the yellow here, right? It's the yellow and blue Okay. compared it, with the expansive footprint of, of the magenta and red, which is currently proposed. Okay, and, and again, what, what is this? I look at the, I call this pink. What is the pink? Uh, it would be the noise shadow of, okay. of so of the impact the of a freeway is not only just simply the consuming of the space, but also the consuming of the, the environment, all the noise pollution that it would bring. How and can you have a transit-oriented development where people live and work if they don't like living there because of the freeway noise? Mm -hmm. It's not going to work. So, so if you're going to invest in a station, in my opinion, it makes sense to commingle both the rubber tire and the steel wheel in a way that the station can actually serve a residential community that can be proud of where they want to live. So it can be friendly to the community, yes. friendly to the environment, because this part of the environment, our ears, yeah. is part of sensory experience it, of right. the environment. Yeah, it's, uh, so yeah. You, you protect the character of the island. And you allow it to be a viable economic resource for the broader community. And just think about it, if you save three quarters of a billion dollars in the process, why would you not want to do that? Okay, there must be some downside to okay. this. But let's, let's pause for a minute. We'll pull up right. on the screen the, the, right. a, a sound barrier idea. Okay, so we'll, hold, we'll close this. And this might take a while to find because I think it's buried pretty deep in. All right. And oh, no, it's right here. Right there, huh? Okay, so I'll maximize that guy. Okay. Okay. So... So this is a sound mitigating solution. This would be uh, a artistic kind of a, a sound wall. Is this glass? Maybe you can describe what we have going here. David, what we have here is, is a glass sound wall. Okay. And it is metaphorically similar in look as a, say, a deciduous forest would be okay. along the shoreline of the Columbia River. So. But yet it's composed of steel and glass, so it's modern. It, it's man-made. It, it, it shows a, a contemporary sensitivity to how to place and contain the noise of a freeway within an urban setting. Now, we pay more for that, and we burden ourselves with additional maintenance. But the ability to create essentially half a dozen new city blocks and an additional half dozen city blocks without noise and enough of a critical mass to say we have 20 contiguous city blocks that can be a destination for many thousands of people to live and work, 
to me, it makes this investment self-evident. Mm-hmm. Now, so this now would be... we, would, we, would, we would worry about, say, birds running into it. So we'd probably fret the glass so it's not transparent mm-hmm. but translucent. We might put a color in it, and we might hold it in place by what look like tree branches that hold it. But not a design. This is just an, an indicative illustration of what the community can use in terms of architectural expression to contain that noise and still create a sense of place that's unique. In fact, if this was done on Hayden Island, this would be a showpiece, showplace for the world of how to contain the objectionable noise of a freeway, make it look delightful. You commingle in there the, the elevated light rail station, and then the station floats in a, in a, in a forest of, of steel and glass. It so could you, be a wonderfully rich in architectural experience. So you're not just simply a concrete bridge designer or a steel bridge designer. You care about the aesthetics of it. You care about it, how it's going to look to the community. You care about the sound design of Fit it. Fit for function means it must meet with the subjective qualitative aspirations of a community. That requires tremendous sensitivity to the aesthetics of what we do. And yes, I take great pride in whatever I do. It is as aesthetically viable as it can possibly be. We can take joy in it when it's finished. So, you, you, so the, the community, I would think, if they care about those, those uh, issues, and I would think they would. If I lived on Hayden Island, I would, I, I would expect that I, it would be great if you could minimize right. the cost and, and, if you, and, and, and minimize, if you were, minimize the ugliness and the, right. and and the sprawl and of if this you're thing. Spra- and if you did not accommodate this five, six, seven thousand people within a desirable Hayden Island, they sprawl. They must live somewhere else. So we you drive them out. And we have a light rail station there. Does it make sense not to do it? No. Hmm. So anyway, Hayden Island. Okay. Can nice. we look at the Vancouver side we and see about can. the footprint there? Okay. We'll close this and we'll put the other. Okay. We're looking at two different designs. This is this on the Vancouver side. What, is all, what are all these red blocks here? Well, David, what I've tried to do on the left is, is show how a straight freeway coming out of the gap between Fort Vancouver and downtown Vancouver. Mm-hmm. When you cover up the light here, it's, it's, oh. it's, it's your shade. It's automatic light control Trust here. Trust technology. <laughs> <laughs> so what you, here's, here's your bridge. And it's, it goes across straight. And, and if we have a collector distributor underneath the through lanes, we basically have the potential for nothing on the ground plane. But we do have to connect with SR 14, mm-hmm. State Road 14. I think Vancouver should have a street-level connection between the waterfront and Fort Vancouver. In what's currently being proposed, you cannot do that. It divides, cur- the current proposal divides the city. Right, much as it occurs now. Mm-hmm. Okay? So I wanted a solution that reconnected Fort Vancouver with Lower Vancouver and made a more continuous connection of the waterfront for urban enjoyment and brought the downtown of the city into the waterfront experience. When I looked into the master plans that the city has for their future, mm-hmm. they were kind of forced to ignore that portion of the city because, of, because of, of the presence of the freeway. And I thought that was unfortunate. And that's the heart and soul of Vancouver. Fort Vancouver was formed. Vancouver was an adjacent trading post. That's how the community grew. There was a ferry crossing. Then there was a first bridge. And then, then it was separated by a noisy, intrusive freeway. And that's the way we've been doing business in Vancouver for the last 50 years. Huh. I think the city should try to reconnect with the waterfront 
and Fort Vancouver. Yeah, with the, with the now, now we waterfront do. development here, they, they put, actually kind of put that on hold here because of the impact. And, the and anything that we can do with this freeway to make it, this area more attractive makes that development more viable. I think so it helps I've, Hidden Island, it helps this. Uh, it, so it, is this recaptured? Well, if we look over here on the right, what's okay. in red is the actual footprint of the of the of the current proposal okay. that would not be there with the straight alignment. Now the noise shadow you'll notice here is a little bit wider because I assume that we would not contain the noise with within a sound barrier. Mm -hmm. But I would think on the Vancouver or the Fort Vancouver side we would do that. So we'd bring in the sound barrier. Mm -hmm. But what I found fascinating about this is the stacking of the collector distributor and the through lanes actually ends up with a smaller footprint in Fort Vancouver than the current proposal or even the current freeway. So it reduces the land take in Fort Vancouver. It connects the tourist portion of the fort with downtown Vancouver with a city street that does go through this forest of columns that supports the freeway. But I would think that that would be a wonderful opportunity for an artist and engineer to collaborate to really suggest something like maybe old growth trees that connect the fort with what is the river and the trading town, mm. and it creates a wonderfully rich pedestrian environment in which a visitor from Portland could take light rail over to Vancouver on a weekend, get off the train, three blocks, and you're enjoying the cultural resource that is Fort Vancouver. Wow. Vancouver becomes a destination for people on weekends, as well as a better place to live and work. Rather than the city under the bridge, this opens up all of this, recaptures all of this area here. So this becomes developable, new city uh, resource yeah, absolutely. character. Absolutely. Now, I, I have to add to this that we do have Burlington Northern rolling through there. Okay? And you can see Burlington Northern down here. Mm -hmm. I've taken the liberty mm -hmm. in this sketch to show that, you know, 50 years from now, 20 years from now, well, this bridge is going to be around for 200 plus years. Mm -hmm. So I've shown that, that, that Burlington Northern Santa Fe Railroad Bank berm mm -hmm. is replaced with a very thin bridge that's open underneath for people to pass through. Mm -hmm. So if you look at a strategy for containing and controlling your infrastructure, you can bring back a way of life which if you look at the historic pictures of Vancouver, people are crying out to re-experience. So, yes, this sets up the mechanism for the city to create a series of investments over the next couple of generations that fulfills everything that you see here. And immediately, with the light rail in, we do have that pedestrian link to Fort Vancouver. So what, what I saw missing from this project was really that broader civic vision for how we can control this infra infrastructure to make it actually contribute to the betterment of our communities. Hmm. It simply was an engineering exercise, and, and unfortunately the people that were asked to participate in that were given such narrowly defined scopes that they weren't allowed to be, to, to, to be as, as creative and as insightful as one would have hoped they would have been. There were a number of very nice, very good architectural firms, planning firms involved in this project that unfortunately were, were relegated to more of a, a decoration role. 
with, within the project. And I just think it's such a tragedy that we were not use, able to use more creative minds during the beginning of this process when we when it been, would have been so much easier. And, and, I, and, I, and I can see by this notion of a straight alignment, separating the high-speed movement from the lower-speed movement, creating that shore-to-shore arterial, that I'm, I'm highly speculative here, but, but, but I would actually think if, if we would have done that, we would have a project that people would be taking pride in mm-hmm. now and not, not be so anxious about. And, and, I, and, I, and, I, and I feel the sentiment about being anxious is, is, I would be anxious too. I would not want what's currently being proposed in, in my city. Well, you're not alone. The question is, it, 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 there must be a downside to this. What is, what is the downside of this compared to the, the current proposal? It requires a change. So if you resist change, then you don't like it. But there must... You have uh, to, I, I know when it comes to making you know, decisions, I, I, I personally... You, you need to back up in your decision-making process and go back to a point. You have to vet this idea for environmental impact. I know it'll be better, but you need to go through the, the procedures that are required by our government authorities to do that. You have a series of interlocal agreements that you would have to alter. Um, you might get out of step relative to funding from the federal government. You might put that in jeopardy. Well, you could, get, you could get buy-in from the community. For, if something for Hayden Island, for downtown Vancouver, for all of us, they end up saving a lot of money on this project. Uh, there's, well, when it comes to making decisions, I never go back and, re- and reconsider a decision. Once I make a good decision, I stay with it, except... If something comes up that's so significant, it's a game changer, that's new, then I'll go back and I'll reevaluate that. Right. And, and, and when I agreed to look at this, I stated that if I could not see an obviously better way of solving this problem, that I would not engage myself. I see there is a much better way of doing this project. To me, the change is administrative. I think politically we could go to Washington, D.C., and we can say we have a much better solution that will require much less money. I can go to people on Hayden Island and say, I know this freeway now is going to work to your advantage. I can go back to Fort Vancouver about 1970s. I was there as a student trying to sort out and make the place viable in the future and say, you know, this freeway is not going to contribute to making this a much more desirable place to be. I'm confident that the benefits far outweigh the bureaucratic problems that would be created by what I always say is always trying to do the right thing. It appears what you bring, what you have before us is a contrast. On one hand, you have the bureaucratic process, the government trying to design and build a bridge, which has already has consumed so much money. And really, how many happy campers do we have here with this, with this design? We have uh, those companies, those service providers, and those that are basically going to be involved in the construction of this bridge saying, 
I don't care what it is, just build it. Full speed ahead, we want jobs, we want jobs, you know, that kind of thing. And just recently it was revealed that they've been saying this is going to bring 20,000 jobs to this area. And, and a few days ago, the truth came out that it's less than 2,000 jobs multiplied times 10 years. Well, yeah. that's not the way you count jobs. So well, we want jobs, you know, but if, we want to be able to David, build the right thing. David, if, if the citizens of Vancouver are willing to commit the equivalent of, what did I say, four years worth of every tax penny that they pay, in order to do this right now with this design, it would be an odd community you live in. Um, but which now that's I the think that has cost. a lot to do with why but, they're not so asking 2, for a vote on this. 2,000 jobs. 2,000 jobs against all the tax money that has to be taken out of the economy to pay for this when, it, when this is a clearly a better result. Mm -hmm. David, that just doesn't make sense to me. But I'm not an economist. I could only look at this and say, I have a possibility here, which I think is correct, of fit for function that has tremendous environmental cost civic benefit to these communities. What you represent, in contrast to this bureaucratic process that we've gone through, very expensive and a very complex uh, process and product that's not going to meet our needs very well, in contrast to what, I, what you represent to me as private industry. Well, but you have to realize that, that I am employed by governments. I think the last contract I had with a private entity might have been a decade ago. I, no, I, I think there's been a few worse. But, my, but, but I strive in my role is to help government entities try to make the most efficient, most desirable investment that they can make with their infrastructure dollars. I am entrepreneurial. I love a challenge. I like to take on projects like this and turn, what did they say, a, a cow's ear into a silk purse. That <laughs> should be the role that we all strive to do when we are spending other people's money. And when we do things for the common good through taxation, we spend other people's money. I would want my money to be spent in the very best possible way because I would love to see Vancouver and Hayden Island really desirable places to be. Hayden Island in the 1920s was a destination resort for, for Portland. I would love to see that sense of civic pride that comes from doing a project that, that the broader region is proud of and we can proclaim internationally that we are on the cutting edge of fitting freeways into urban environments. Part of this, uh, the, part of the problem that we face right now is, is saving face. We have so, we have got politicians that have, that have just simply yeah. said full speed ahead and they put their, they, they really kind of respect their, uh, and, and, and David, put their thank, reputation thank, on this. Thank you for inviting me to, to share with you what, what I discovered. Um, the more people that are aware that there, there is a viable alternative to what's being proposed that actually has such, such benefit the better off we will all be in, in society. Um, yeah, I would, I would hope that we do have leadership that, that wants to, to have their picture on the wall be recalled by future generations as that's the person that made this project possible. Instead of the footnote that said the reason why Vancouver and Hayden Island are but a ghost of what they were in the past is that guy on the wall over there let mm -hmm. this happen. I would hope that that would be the motivation of civic leaders, especially when you can save money.
That's <laughs> just, it's, it's just to have, me, it's a no-brainer. I see that we have an opportunity here. Those, those representatives that are in power now, can, they have two choices. They can say, hey, full speed ahead, and, I'm, and I, I don't want to admit that, I was, that there's a better solution to well, this, a well, significantly better solution. There's a potentially better solution. You know, I'm a, I'm a solo operator here. I'm not getting paid by anyone to do this. So you volunteered. This is all of your volunteer time. Absolutely. So to me, to me, it makes no sense to ask all the citizens of Vancouver to contribute all their taxes for a number of years simply to build something that's going to undermine the viability of their community. So you haven't oh, been paid for your services out of this at all. This is no. A, it's only cost me thousands of dollars to do this. That's quite incredible. I, I look at the those individuals. Uh, that have come forward that express care about this project and our care about our community and they've all f volunteered their time, volunteered their services at their own expense, uh, contributed to uh, trying to make this a better place here. Well, David, in all, in all fairness, um, my philosophy in life is, is that I do receive an income from the public good. I'm paid to help cities with infrastructure. I'm a product of Washington State University. The taxpayer paid for my education. I, I try to give back a, a quarter or a third of my time. And, and for the last couple of years, I've given that for this, for this project. No, I think, I think our obligation when we take from society is to give back to society. And this is nothing more than than my giving back what society has given me. There are people like that, and, they, and the significance well, I think, I think of what of, you can most of us try to, try to achieve that. I, however, yeah. am blessed with the fact that I, I have um, a support mechanism that lets me do that, too, which is called a very, a very uh, tolerant wife and, and, an, and a point of view and a passion that, that allows me to do this. Well, it's, it's a very significant game changer here. Uh, this, this is... To be able to pre present a viable solution that's lower cost. Appears to be viable, appears to be lower Potentially, cost. it needs to be yes. vetted, needs to be yes. evaluated. But certainly, if we're going to, we're talking about investing billions and billions right. of dollars into, the, into this project, yep. it makes sense to consider, to go back and, okay, before we invest all these billions of dollars, are we on the right track? Is there something that's a significant game changer? Should we consider that? Uh, at, as citizens, here you, you, you live in Van, Van, or you live in Seattle area, right? Well, actually, um, San Juan Island. Oh, San Juan <laughs> Island. Okay. I've, I've well, there. north of here, this yes. isn't even your community, but yet you care about us down here, and you've invested this time. You know, we're asking taxpayers in Georgia to help pay for this. You know, and if this challenge, in other words, was, the federal dollars that are going to come in to pay for this, yeah, state we dollars. We are into this as a nation. We are a community. This yeah. nation is a community. Yep. Yeah, there, so, there's, there's no hesitation on my so part. So what can we as a community do in order to somehow bring good sense, uh, good financial sense, good infrastructure which, which, okay. sense to this So you're, you're asking for a recommendation. Yeah. Um, from, a de from a bridge designer. Okay. <laughs> okay. So exactly the same thing that I did. I would say, is there a better way of doing it? My mandate would be to challenge this look for all the errors, look for all the flaws, simultaneously eke out and improve upon all the benefits that are embodied within this notion. I would do that in a condensed two months effort where you have engineers and architects who are not involved in the project. 
Because one thing I found in my life, when you have architects and engineers who have designed something, they know what they've designed, so their worldview is biased by save what they Well, not necessarily to save face, but the problem has been solved, so the attitude changes. Hmm. And, I, and, I, and if I were ODOT and WASHDOT or the governors, I would say, okay, find a small group of people, half dozen people, get them together for three or four weeks, transportation planner, real good one, bridge engineer, real good one, architect, real good one, throw darts at this, but struggle with it to try to eke out what is the advantage of it, mm -hmm. and, then, and then respond, react. Say, is it something that, that should be considered or not? Okay, in the meantime, we can, what do you think about the idea of push, pushing the pause button on this current proposal, uh, it's on the fast track to fund it and, and build it, and, and yet they, it's really, they don't even David, have a design. I, I, will, I will speak to the physical need, okay. not, not the funding source and the revenue stream and the agreements and commitments. Strictly from a practical layman's point of view, you know, we've been suffering with an economic downturn. Mm -hmm. That's probably going to be with us a little bit longer than people hope. We're not looking to reestablish that log jam in the freeway probably for a half dozen or years. I think we've set back the growth charts that have been put forward to justify the project. The money savings and the environmental impact, um, I, think, I think time out is required. I think people need to pause. You can, you can take time out by paralleling tasks. You put at risk the design dollars you're being spent during the paralleling time, but and we're not talking many dollars compared with billions and billions of dollars. We're and talking we're talking about a relatively short period of time with some probably expensive people because they know what they're talking about, and and asking themselves if the, if this is not a better solution, and then giving that to our civic leaders and having them do what we as voters have asked them to do and help us with those decisions. Which makes good sense. Right now we're, we're spending millions of dollars per month on this current proposal. Right. And it's, it's the, the idea of, I think the, the review of third party outside designers uh, and I would certainly include you in that list because this is, you've, you've well, already invested so I, much of this. What I would expect is for me to defend sure. this notion yep. and to point out what, what I think needs to be looked at and what I wasn't so able to draw the So you welcome the critical evaluation. Well, it's the only way we learn as people is to have people help us with a better understanding mm -hmm. of what we've done. If I look, <laughs> I look at this and I compare it to what currently is proposed, uh, this is something that I think that the community could get behind. This is something that I could get behind. But you know, the thing is that the, the engagement of the community is something that also, there, there's a process, not just the well, design, but the yeah. process of well, making this happen. Yeah, and one thing, one it's, thing, it's not lent, and, and it doesn't David, lend itself to get to buy-in. David, one thing I've discovered is, is that when I'm, a, when I'm invited into a community, when I'm invited in, say I go to Saudi Arabia or Beirut or Istanbul or London or Singapore or Sydney, Australia, I'm invited in. That means that there's this notion that people might benefit by what I have to say. Mm -hmm. when, when I come in without that invitation, immediately perceived as being an obstacle, uh, 
something that's detrimental to, to consensus and, and conclusion of the, of the planning effort. Yeah. So I'll fully appreciate the fact that there's a reluctance to embrace something like this. I think, however, it's very compelling and, and should be considered. I agree. So how do we invite you in? That's what we have a government of elected people to do. So the natural, of course, we've got see, in our, lo our local area, we have, uh, ha we have these terms, locally preferred alternative. Does this fall into that category? Is, can you consider this a locally preferred alternative? Well, remember that the process to date has followed a path that has resulted in a technical solution that I feel is not the right fit for function. So yes, we would have to change certain definitions. The locally preferred alternative would probably be this if people could see this. So yeah, I, we would we would have to change decisions and commitments we've already made. Mm -hmm. Okay. Change. Leadership. We can affect our current leadership, and say, "Will you please do what you can in order to see yeah, if and, this and, makes and sense?" I, and, I'm, and I'm sorry, David. Be, again, I'm I'm invited into communities, and that invitation is is a recognition on the part of those civic leaders that mm -hmm. we need to do things in a different way than we have before. You yes. don't invite someone to come travel halfway around the world if you want to do things the exact yes. same way you've done it before. Yes. I can't speak to what motivates sure. the leaders of this community. Right. I'm, I'm sorry, I cannot do that. Well, I'm not asking you to, I'm, but, I'm, but as a <laughs> local citizen here and as a, as a person that, that cares about this project, uh, I would I would think at this point, the, the, what we can do as citizens, and I'm speaking to you, not asking you for okay. your direction on okay. this, is that we would appeal to our local elected officials, our representatives, our city councils, our county commissioners, our state legislature representatives, and say, will you please consider this? Uh, take a, a month uh, out and, and allow this see if we can shoot holes in this and how much does this make sense. In order to do that, we can, uh, we can do it two ways. And this is, again, I'm not, I'm not asking for your opinion. This, right. this, is, this is our community. Yeah. Uh, my ideas for our community here is that hopefully our local leaders will be willing to do that. To me, it looks like, why wouldn't we do that? It makes sense. Uh, if not, then the alternative would be, hey, local leaders, we want to replace you. We, will want, we, we want leadership that makes sense, that will do what's best for the community and not this bureaucratic process that just pushes ahead regardless I, of the sense of it. I will make, I'll make a most intriguing observation. Okay. Sometimes I work in, in countries that for our practical purposes are dictatorships. Mm -hmm. It's such an embarrassment when I see more progressive thinking coming from those communities than I see here. It's such an embarrassment. No, we are a democracy. and, and and I know that you spend a great deal of your resources and time civically involved, engaged in the community. I try to do the same mm -hmm. myself. It is our responsibility to do that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And it is political within the, within the arena we, we engage. And we do have elected representatives. Yeah. So hopefully we can make a difference in those yes. elected representatives if they're really listening to the heart of our community, we'll be willing to consider this and, and see if we can punch holes in it. If we can punch holes well, in it, then we'll say, hey, we'll have more confidence in the current right. design. And if, and you if, welcome that. And if there are fewer holes than there are substance to this, 
we will have heroes in the community that say, I stepped forward and made this change. Yes. And that's, and that's of course, assuming that this is significantly better than what's being proposed. We don't really know until we allow this to be considered well, I'm and see if we can. Well, I'm confident it's viable, but I don't think the community can be confident simply because I say that in something. And it's but important. Yes. I think when, when we post this story online, uh, you have these credentials that go on for pages. Oh, please don't. <laughs> and so I like people just simply, uh, if people doubt your credibility, I like to be able to just include your credentials on that because you are an expert and you have plenty of experience on this. And if anybody says, oh, you know, doesn't know what he's talking about, that is quickly refuted by all of your experience in this. Uh, one, one question I, that I, I wonder, just in comparison to, well, it has to do with cost. In the United States here, we put so many man-made obstacles that drive the cost way up. You've built bridges or designed bridges all over the world. Oh. How does the United States cost comparison uh, compare to other places in the world? How much of these man-made obstacles have we placed? That, uh, what has that done to the cost of these, of these things? Doubled the cost. Um. We want to be socially, we want to be environmentally responsible. Well, you can be environmentally responsible and you can create good design, both engineering and aesthetically, by different procurement process that you can, you can different paths you can take through design. The same month that Seattle area voters voted on building sound transit, the light rail line between downtown Seattle and, and the airport. Actually, within a week, I was asked to visit Izmir on the Aegean coast of Turkey, a three million population city. They decided to build a mass transit system. Very complicated. Uh, the, one of the deepest underground stations in Europe. Um, underground stations through an archaeologically complex environment. Um, probably total maybe 20, 25 stations. I think it was four, four and a half years they were serving customers, moving people around the city. For a third, a quarter of what Sound Transit ended up spending for a project that took them well over a decade to develop tremendous costs. I think the United States can learn a lot about delivering better quality infrastructure to citizens of this country quicker if we would seriously look at the obstacles we put in place of our leaders trying to get things done to the betterment of, of the population they represent. That is quite a contrast to where we came from. When we built the, the uh, interstate freeway system. We were the, the pinnacle of the world when it comes to the, that amazing infrastructure. Right. Economically, just, just but, but set, let me, the let me, let me qualify then. that. We have learned a tremendous amount about the environmental, social, economic cost of doing things incorrectly. Mm -hmm. What we did in the 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s, I like to think we've learned that many of those things that we did were wrong. Yes, I agree. But I do not think it's an impediment to sharing those lessons learned and applying them efficiently and effectively within design and planning decisions we make for future infrastructure. 
So I'm not one to say we need to abandon our regulations. Absolutely. What we must do is we should make them more efficient. We should give all of that information earlier to designers, and we should shape our infrastructure to be as responsive as it possibly can to all those lessons we've learned in the past. I think that the biggest problem we deal with now is, is that we don't look towards those environmental management process issues to try to make it easier for our society to develop the infrastructure it needs. I think those have become processes in and of themselves that don't always bring the right information to those who are required to discover how best to fit function yes. into complex urban environments. And as a nation, it appears that we're losing our competitive edge because of our exaggeration of these processes. You know, last week I was invited to um, go to Saudi Arabia to help them um, manage the development of a high-speed rail system that they're currently building in Saudi Arabia with our petrodollars. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't want to admit it, but I, but I think your observation has strong merit of, of truth. But it does not have to end there. The awareness of a problem, the awareness of the need for correction, should move us to action to make the changes, to wake us up and say, let's get on the right track. Well, to, to do things better. Smarter. Smarter, better. Absolutely. You know, and there's buzzwords going on. Lean, efficient, um, environmentally sustainable. All these words. We need to capture the value of those words and embody it in how we do our business so we can arm as many people with as much information to get these projects correct. It should be what we strive to do, not what we delegate and relegate to others to decide for us. There's no substitute for good leadership. True. This is great. I appreciate that you have invested so much and you've taken the time to share your ideas with us. And I'm very grateful. Hopefully people in our community we will, will give this a chance and will allow our and hopefully our representatives will allow this to be evaluated, critically uh, evaluated, and see whether or not this makes more sense. Maybe um, you can get us on the right track. Amazing what one individual can do. Well, there's a lot of experiences and a lot of other individuals embodied in what I know. But thank you, David. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you, sir. That wraps it for Clark County Today.